Hi, I'm Dr. Jared, and welcome to the Plantastic Podcast, a show for plant killers, green thumbs, and everyone else in between. Listen along as I deconstruct the craft and practices of remarkable horticulturists so that you can better cultivate your plants and yourself. Let's grow. This episode of the Plantastic Podcast is brought to you by Phlox Pelosa or Prairie Phlox. With the arrival of spring, my garden is erupting into bloom, and I couldn't be happier to see prairie phlox starting to flower. This plant brings me so much joy to see the colors as they range from pink to purple and even white. And it also brings me so much joy to smell. The fragrance is lovely and is carried so well by the breeze through the garden. While I smell it on and off during the day, I seem to notice the fragrance more in the evenings. I've watched hummingbird moths, swallowtails, and other insects enjoy these flowers. Phlox pilosa is also called downy phlox. Pilose comes from the root word pilus, meaning hair or a structure resembling hair. So just like flannel has pile, the threads that emerge from the fabric, the leaves of this native plant also have a hairy feeling from the trichomes on the leaf. Native to roadsides, ditches, prairies, pastures, forest edges, and open woodlands from Texas to Florida, and north toward New England and then the Great Lakes, this is a great plant to welcome into your plantings for seasonal color. Many selections of Phlox pilosa have a running tendency, and its small stature, topping out around 18 inches tall, means that it can find all sorts of nooks and crannies between and under plants in the wild and in your garden. For us in East Texas, plants bloom from March through May and go mostly dormant after flowering. It's fairly easy to propagate. In late winter, after the shoots reemerge, I divide plants and move them where I want. Sowing seed is also an effective means to make more of this great species. Hardy in USDA zones 4 through 9, Phlox pilosa definitely deserves a place in your garden. You can find this plant and many more at your local garden center and favorite mail order nursery. Hello, Plantastic peeps, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Plantastic Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jared. Spring has sprung here in East Texas, and it's so refreshing seeing so much green and seeing all the new blooms that are appearing this season. It's also a new month, and that means it's time for a new episode where I talk to an amazing horticulturist to learn how they engage with plants and people to help us all become better gardeners. My guest this month is Greg Page, who is a public garden rock star, a title I have bequeathed to him since he has worked at seven public gardens during his life. He discovered his career goal early, creating and working in beautiful public gardens and sharing and teaching this passion with others. Greg currently serves as the Director of Horticulture at the J.C. Ralston Arboretum in Raleigh, North Carolina. Greg has had a storied life in public horticulture. His 30-year career involved work at some of the finest gardens in the country, including Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory as Director of Horticulture and Arboretum Curator, Daniel Stowe Botanical Garden in Belmont, North Carolina, the Scott Arboretum of Swarthmore College in Swarthmore, Pennsylvania, the Biltmore Estate in Asheville, North Carolina, the Holden Arboretum outside Cleveland, Ohio, and the Cincinnati Zoo and Botanical Garden in Cincinnati, Ohio. What an incredible list. We talk about all kinds of goodies on this episode, from the impact of books on his life, lessons learned working at so many different institutions, systems and processes he uses to be a better horticulturist, and more, including some of our favorite foods. You can learn more about Greg by visiting the J.C. Ralston Arboretum's YouTube page, where he does occasional educational videos, and I provide a link in the show notes to that. And on Instagram, his handle is Greg Page. That's G-R-E-G-P-A-I-G-E. As always, you can find show notes on the Plantastic Podcast page where I have links and details about things that we have discussed on this great episode. So without further ado, enjoy this Plantastic, wide-ranging conversation with Greg Page. Greg Page, welcome to the Plantastic Podcast. I am thrilled to have you on today. 
I am so excited to be here. Thanks for uh, taking the time. Definitely. It was so good, too, to catch up with you a couple of weeks ago when I was in Raleigh and seeing all the great work you're doing at the J.C. Ralston Arboretum. I've done mountains of work, and I haven't even been here for four months yet. <laughs> awesome. Let's start with where your passion for plants germinated. Okay. At a very early age, many moons ago, I, I give my grandmother credit for getting me interested in the outdoors. She was one of those relatives who used to pepper me and my brothers with books every Christmas, every holiday. And some people hate that as a gift, but it was so eye-opening to me and just opened me up to trees and plants. She was a big bird watcher. So <clears throat> lots of bird watching books. So my first pair of binoculars came from her, just really installed in me an appreciation for the outdoors, an interest in all things green. And I also had a mother who when we were home from school, she would open up the door at eight o'clock in the morning and say, I don't want to see you and your two brothers until dinner time." <laughs> so we were outside basically 24-7, getting into a whole range of things. And that also fed that, that inspiration to, to like plants, be outside. I'm glad that you had those family connections that really inspired you. It was a big part of growing up and it's something that she probably doesn't appreciate it, but in my grandmother's spirit, my, my daughter gets books every Christmas, oh, not God. necessarily about plants, but I, I try to, in, in, in the spirit of my grandmother, continue that tradition. Excellent. So you, of course, fell in love with plants and nature and the outdoors at a young age. What inspired you to pursue a career in plants? That's a hard one. I... Like most kids, once I got out of high school, I had no idea what I wanted to do, was pressed to do things that made a lot of them was told I should pursue business or the medical profession. My grandmother was a nurse. My mother was a nurse. But those things really didn't interest me. I wanted to do something outdoors. My first stab at that attempt was forestry. So I got a two-year degree in forestry from Lancaster Community College in Clifton Forge, Virginia, in, in the mountains of Southwest Virginia, two-year associate's degree, and loved it, thrived in it, made some amazing friends, and just really couldn't find an area that I wanted to work in, in, in the forestry field, and did an internship when I was in that forestry program at a nursery, of all places, and that really got me more interested in looking at horticulture. Taking a little stab into a different direction, left the forestry world. I ended up working at a Army munitions plant in Virginia, making rocket propellant for the Army and Navy. Wow. Uh, paid very well. I could tell you some blood-curdling tales about working there. <laughs> but mission to that madness was to make as much money as I could in the short term so that I could go back to college. Being in Southwest Virginia at the time, that was Virginia Tech, and they had a horticulture program, and it worked with some people that had gone through it. So when I had my fill of living dangerously, and the explosive nature of what I was doing, pun intended, <laughs> I, I applied to, to Virginia Tech and pursued a degree in horticulture. And uh, that's where it took off from there. Awesome. So at Virginia Tech, what were some great lessons that you took away from there? I really enjoyed, we were a college of agriculture, very much like we are here at uh, State. And I like the interaction with a lot of the students and other programs, so just that kind of networking and just meeting people, different people. I was an older student, which was interesting, lived in the dorm for two years and then in an apartment with roommates. But <clears throat> horticulturally speaking, the plant ID classes, I really liked that. Woody plants, her herbaceous plants. I love those classes. I wish I had done more with landscape architecture. I like those classes as, as well. But all of the well-rounded science of going to a school like Virginia Tech, the chemistry, soils, pathology, insects and diseases. I really like the insects and diseases side of things, integrated pest management. Those were things that really stuck with me and things that carried into jobs in the future. My doing an internship when I was there, that's I tell people that's my Wizard of Oz going from black and white to color moment. I applied to a bunch of places, all that had housing. That was a big, a big reason because I had no money and <clears throat> got a summer internship at the Cincinnati Zoo and Botanical Garden. 
And my first day there, I got there over the weekend in a house right across the street from the zoo, walked across the street on Monday, went to the education building, entered in the back of that building, uh, did my orientation with the education director. And he said, go up the stairs, out the front door, and Rob Halpern, the director of horticulture at the time, will swing by in a golf cart and get you. And literally opened those doors, and it was like that scene in Wizard of Oz, black and white to color. Rain, the spring bulb display was up, so all the tulips and daffodils were doing their thing. The lush green lawn, the irrigation had just stopped, so everything was dewy and drippy. There was a peacock on the main lawn with its feathers. <laughs> the only thing missing were the munchkins and the cowardly lion. And off in the distance, you could hear elephants making racket and gibbons making racket. And I was like, yeah, I want to, I don't want to work in a garden. So I worked there with the fantastic and fabulous Steve Foltz, who really molded my career and what I wanted to do. I did my first tour there. I worked with volunteers for the first time there, did some plant lists with him, did some plant ordering stuff with him, cut my teeth on using equipment and stuff. I was open for business. I was ready to do anything. And did the internship. And anytime I had a break for the rest of the time I was in school, I'd call Steve up and I'd say, hey, I got no place to go. I, I don't want to go home. How about driving to Cincinnati from Blacksburg, Virginia and working for a break? And I would go up every break, do stuff with him. Wow. That's the moment when it, everything fell into place for me. And I knew I wanted to work in public horticulture. That's an amazing story. I love that. It's pretty, pretty cool. Very lucky. Yeah, definitely. So Looking back, it sounds like you started with forestry. You did the internship at the nursery, which kind of then plugged your idea into going for horticulture. And yep. then this internship as well, too. And something else that I think is worthwhile that you mentioned was that you came back as what we call a non-traditional student. Yes. You do this different avenue. So right. for people out there who are non-traditional students or kind of pursuing the approach that you talked about, do you have any advice or if you're looking back over it? Is there anything you would have done differently? You know, it's really hard when you're, I graduated high school young, I was 17. And the, there was no such thing as a gap year when I graduated high school. I had to, I was, I grew up in, in Alabama and it was either go to work in one of the mills or go to school. And I did not want to go to work in one of the mills. I wanted to go to college, but I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I went to a junior college. It's hard to figure out what you want to do from a career perspective. That's a high ambition for someone whose brain isn't finished developing yet. Yeah, that's and, and hasn't had any real life experiences. In, in my career, I've interacted a lot with college students, and I'm always amazed by the non-traditional students that are in two-year programs and or four-year programs, that they've had a little bit more life. They've had some time to figure things out and really pursue something that they're interested in and passionate about. And something I would tell somebody that, that's maybe doing something that they don't like and have always wanted to do something different, be it horticulture or whatever is you're never too old to, to learn something, but take a step in another direction. And you're not going to know unless you, you do it. And if you do it and it doesn't work out, that's a life lesson. And you've learned from those experiences. So I've been very lucky to act with, we had a two-year program and I worked in Charlotte that did a lot of stuff with us. And my, my good friend, Kevin Paris down at Spartanburg Community College, who has some fantastic students, a lot of those non-traditional. I'm always amazed at their passion and their interest and how much throw into to new adventures. And I would encourage people to, to do that if, if you're interested in pursuing something else. Awesome. Good answer. So in looking at your resume and information online, I see that not only have you had experiences at the Cincinnati Zoo and Botanic Garden, but you've also been at Daniel Stowe Botanic Garden. You've yes. been at Scott Arboretum. Yes. You've been at Biltmore Estate. You've been yes. at the Holden Arboretum. And then, of course, later we're going to talk about the Bartlett Research yes. Lab. But for these here, because I know that you spent a lot of time at Bartlett, and I know you're now at the J.C. Ralston Arboretum, you clearly are a public garden <laughs> rock star. There's a running joke among us that... There's only one other person that may have worked at more places than me at all of public horticulture. 
And that on paper, that can be a little bit scary to look at. Some people may think that, hey, that guy is, he's not quite figured out what he wants to do yet. But keep in mind, I started all those careers when I was just a little baby. I was very young when I started this adventure. I was talking to Tom Rainey a couple of weeks ago, a colleague of ours. And he's bounced around a lot. And I have, but I've been at places for big chunks of time. And a lot of those moves to different things were life changes, getting married, starting different careers, you know, having a spouse that was also stretching her wings and doing new things and moving to other places and the give and take of that. Again, the word lucky comes to mind that I've been very lucky to land in some amazing places and work with some unbelievable people, one of which we can talk about at some point that's been on this podcast that's a near and dear friend to both of us, His Royal Highness Andrew Bunting, who who has helped me with a lot of things and steered me in a lot of directions. But yeah, I've worked at a lot of great gardens and been very lucky. Yeah, to me, it just is a testament to how versatile you are. And when you're a public garden rock star, you got to travel around. You're on tour. <laughs> right. That's what it is. I'm on, so, I'm on tour. So I'm trying to think of a great way to, to ask this question, because basically I'm seeing a variety of different botanic gardens here that I feel like you probably took key aspects and experiences away from each one of them. Oh, sure. I'm curious if maybe I can mention one and then... Basically, we could talk about one or two things that you really took away from that experience. Sure. Fire away. Sure. So it sounds like Cincinnati Zoo and Botanic Garden was the first one. So what's some things you took away from there? Again, it was the first place I ever did a garden tour. It was my first experience working with volunteers in the garden, doing membership events, but working with Steve, who's just a wealth of horticulture knowledge, plant combinations was a big thing there. And you've been there seeing the stuff that they're doing. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And Steve is a great guy too. Steve. Yeah. Yeah. Fabulous. And all of the staff there, it's an amazing, the conservation work they do, plants and animals, but the animal exhibits are as close to natural as they could be. And they really take a lot of care and, and energy into the design of those and the combinations of things and making bulb displays different and interesting every year. That's a hard charge to do. And they do it. Their summer annuals, their containers, all that kind of stuff I learned. How do they do that? Do they plan far in advance? Do they set things up and get everybody involved? What's the process for that? It's much different than when I was there. The staff is bigger. They've got Scott Berline there and other folks. They've had some people retire but just incredible staff that has input on all that kind of stuff. And they're really involved with local nurseries and green industry folk and all the people that are growing the new and unusual plants and getting things in from all those folks. It would have to be a lot of planning just from the bulb perspective. I don't know what number of bulbs they plant every year, but that's a huge undertaking to, to plant the color combinations and then timing, getting them in. And with the way the weather has been the last several years, that makes my stomach hurt. Just oh, thinking of trying, yeah. to, try, trying to pull that off in a spring. As it's 80 degrees, as I look out the window here today, it's 630. So yeah, a lot of, I'm sure it's a lot of planning, pull that off. And which place was next? From the Cincinnati Zoo, I went to the Holden Arboretum. I did a year-long curatorial internship that turned into a full-time job. And that's the first place I did plant database stuff. I oh, got, cool. ex- got exposed to BG Base. Michael Neal was there when he was crafting things and rolling that out across the universe. Edge, that part of Northeastern Ohio is very cold. So spent a lot of quality time in front of a computer, entering data, changing, deaccessioning plants, going out and mapping and measuring things. So really learning that, those very, very basics of curatorial practices. I and mean, it was, again, an amazing staff there that I was lucky to work with and be involved with. And with that internship, I rotated through all the garden areas and got to work again with some amazing horticulturists, many of whom I'm still good friends with. Turned into a full-time job on the outer collection. The Holden is just over 4,000 acres So a lot of the outer collections, we'd be in a part of the property where we wouldn't see a human being all day long. We'd just be pruning trees all day. So just learning the diversity of trees and shrubs and young tree pruning, structural pruning, that's where I got my first taste of that. 
herbicide application, weed control. That was the first place I got to do that kind of stuff. It's also the first place I learned about NOMO, leaving meadows and edges and that sort of stuff. They had a very big conservation front there and still do. It was the first place I ever learned about plant conservation. Peter Bristol and Charles Tubising are kind of stalwarts in the, the plant collecting plant conservation world. And they would do winter lectures in, in the dead of winter of their trips to Korea and China and Japan really learned about that at a very early age and never imagined that I would be so lucky to get to do some of that stuff as as well. That's awesome. And so then was Daniel Stowe or Biltmore next from something else in between? Something else in between. So moved from Ohio to the Delaware Valley and tried very hard to get a job in the Delaware Valley. It didn't work out and got a job at a cemetery as a horticulturalist. The biggest privately owned cemetery in, in, in Wilmington is actually Newcastle, Delaware. And they had just developed a new area and were encouraged by the landscape architect to lay it out to hire somebody to manage the trees and do more with displays of things to make it better, a nicer place to visit with seasonal color and stuff. So I worked there for a while, all the time with an eye on trying to get into one of the bazillion public gardens that were in the area. It was a good job. I learned a lot about ordering plants and taking some of that stuff I learned from Steve at the zoo about plant collaborating things and combinations of things. Did my very first annual displays all by myself from planning to laying out to ordering stuff. So it was a great learning opportunity, but I also spent a lot of time helping with the funerals and digging graves and all that entails and not what I wanted to do. And happened to uh, be at a Delaware Center for Horticulture lecture and bumped into Jeff Jabko and had heard about a job that was open there and ended up interviewing and getting a job at the Scott Arboretum, Swarthmore College. It's a great location. I did my summer internship there and that's where you and I first met. It was either there during that or I think it was one of the follow-up symposiums that they had. It was. We were both there at the same time. Well, I'm glad our lives crossed then. So it's funny how it works out, isn't it? <laughs> it is. So what are some lessons that people can apply in their own homes that you took and own gardens and or public gardens that you took away from the Scott Arboretum? Learning from a home garden perspective, I, I got involved with a lot of integrated pest management there and was the integrated pest management coordinator and a volunteer coordinator for the garden volunteers there. So just learning that was big and really honed my interest in, in that side of things. And what is integrated pest management for those people at home who may not have heard that before? Integrative pest management or IPM is a sustainable landscape management style of maintaining a landscape. And it's a multi-pronged approach to managing your landscape using cultural controls, chemical controls if you need to, beneficial insects, and simply monitoring your landscape for those sorts of things. For example, another thing that I learned there that was something that we did a lot of classes and interacted with the public with was taking care of a rose garden. So there's a lot of integrated pest management that goes into managing a rose garden. You could spray to no end or you can take a multi-pronged approach and use beneficial insects and have a higher threshold for insects and diseases and really learned about that, all the basics of that. And that area was so in tune and close-knit with a lot of other gardens and other arboreta. There was a lot of overlap in those worlds with friends and colleagues at other gardens and get to learn and interact with, with those folks as well. Yeah. What about the volunteer program? Because I'm always looking at ways that we can enhance ours at the university. I, I always look back at working with volunteers and I was at Bartlett for 17 and didn't work with volunteers. And I really missed that, that interaction. A group of people that's dedicated to an organization and, and works really hard weeding or whatever, doing any number of things, there's something to be said for that. And really got to make good friendships with people. The training and the teaching I really enjoyed with those long-term friendships were crucial. I still get cheery-eyed when I get emails from folks at Scott if somebody's gotten sick or passed away. But in terms of managing volunteers, the most important thing is, is being conscious of their time, making sure you're organized when people get there that you at least on surface appear to know what you're doing. You don't want people to show up and you're not ready for them. Listening, 
um, asking questions, having them ask questions is crucial. And just appreciation. You can say thank you too much. And it, people can tell whether it's heart, heartfelt or not. But that's a huge key to working with volunteers is being thankful and appreciative, respectful, always being willing to listen and take time. If they're taking time to be there to, to work with you in less than hospitable conditions in the summer and the cold and the wind and the rain and poison ivy and fire ants or whatever, the least you can do is stop what you're doing and listen and, and pay attention to those needs and having that level of appreciation. We're really good about that here. We were really good about that at the Scott Arboretum. When I worked at Daniel Stowe, I was a volunteer coordinator there as well for the garden volunteers. And it's crucial to be respectful of their time and be just appreciative of having that interaction and their dedication to what you're doing. Awesome. And so from there, you move south, correct? So there's always this part of me that wanted to move back south. And so I worked at the Scott for the only thing worse than my sense of direction is my sense of time. I want to say I was maybe there for six years, got the itch to move south. And Kara, my, my ex-wife, got offered a job in Asheville and was very familiar with Asheville when I was in college. We would go there on occasion for bike racing and other things and jumped at the opportunity and with help from some people in that area, found out about a job at the Biltmore State and went down to interview and ended up moving down to, to, to Asheville and was foreman for the wall garden at the Biltmore Estate. Oh, nice. I love that garden. It was fantastic. It was, it was a lot to, to take on, a lot of responsibility. But again, the people that I worked with there were absolutely amazing. I mean, learned so much from being with them. The gardeners that I worked alongside in the wall garden were some of the best horticulture I've ever worked with. And it was fun to be there because it was always changing and evolving. It was a centerpiece there. And you'd be there in the morning before visitors got there and just look up at the house and, and from the house, look off into the distance and see Mount Pisgah and, and think when this house was built, he owned all the property out past Mount Pisgah. It's just, it's hard to understand that, but it was an amazing place to, to work and live. Uh, you're making me lust for the mountain. <laughs> That's an everyday thing. For me. The only negative thing about moving to Raleigh is it's two <laughs> hours further away from the mountains. Than I wish you're not like... 13 hours like I am. Yes. <laughs> I'll have, heartbreaking. I'll have dreams at night where probably like once a month or so I'm up in the mountains just walking around, just enjoying life. So I all at least once a week, I will how honest to goodness have a dream. I could even tell you some of the places walking across Shining Rock or yeah. where wherever. Gorge. I dream about Linville Gorge at least once a week. It's yeah. deep in it's deep in our bones. Yeah, isn't that amazing how landscapes yeah. and places have that impact on you? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's deep in my bones and in my heart tissue for sure. Yeah. So at Biltmore, were you, since you were part of the wall garden, were you also responsible for those annual bed plantings they did out with the tapestry type plantings, like the bulbs and stuff? Yes. And that really took a whole different turn after I left in terms of the intricacies of what they do now. They okay. really kind of, they really amped up their game, but yeah. We, the pattern beds, as they were called when I was there, summer, summer annuals, uh, we'd pull those out in the fall and plant them with mums. When the mums were done, we'd pull them out and plant bulbs. The bulbs would come up in the spring and the whole cycle would start over again. So we would do the wall garden. We also did the bulb displays all through the estate at the front entrance, at the restaurants and other places. Other crews did the ones up at the house and those big containers and whatnot. But yeah, and then we stuck to the same kind of color palette and what they had old records of. They like, lather, rinsed and, and repeated that. I think they've changed it up a, a little bit over the years to do things a little bit differently. When I was there, we planted over 500,000. Oh. It's probably double that now because I got to see it right before the pandemic and they had upped their game. It was quite amazing. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Y'all did repetition with color schemes because that really helps unite an area together. Yeah. It, it does. It does. How soon did y'all start planning those out? Was it like a year or? I didn't get really deeply involved in the planning. We would meet about that and they ordered them direct from uh, in, in Holland. They had a broker that they worked with and pallets of bulbs. And I'm sure it's changed with the weather with them in terms of how they get them delivered. When I first started there, they had a walk-in cooler that they were working on. So it wasn't until the second year that I was there that they could use it because they were working on the conservatory when I was there. I don't know if they've changed that since I've been there. 
but that helps keep the bulbs cold. Oh for, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, for the crazy weather that I have. That that was always a concern and helped make many a sleepless night that either we're going to get a frost and kill all the mums before they had a chance to do anything, or it would get super hot, the bulbs would come up, and then it would get super cold. Oh, um, yeah. It's life on the edge in horticulture, <laughs> as you're well aware. That's true, indeed. So from there, I'm assuming you went to Daniel Stowe next? No. So from there, my, my ex-wife, Kara, got offered a job back in Philadelphia. And at the AABGA, there was a meeting in Vancouver that I went to when I was at the Biltmore and saw Jeff Jabko there. And he we had dinner one night and he said, uh, did you ever think about coming back to Philadelphia? And I said, as a matter of fact, there's some things going on that are, might put us back there. And he said, we just got some money for some new gardens and some expansion on campus. And with that, I get to hire two new gardeners and I want a dedicated IPM and a garden volunteer coordinator. And I thought about you for this job. And I was like, let's go sign me up. So moved back to the Philadelphia area and stayed on for, I want to say nine, nine years back in the Delaware Valley before I got the itch to, to move South again. Okay. And then we moved South again. And then, then we moved south again. I got that that incurable itch. Kara got offered a job and we moved back down to Charlotte and she and I decided it's time we do different things. She went out to do other things and I was at, at Daniel Stowe. Daniel Stowe at that time frame, Doug Ruin was there, who was here at the Ralston. He's a well-known guru of oh, plantations. Yeah. He and Edith Edelman have done the perennial borders here. And I have one of those Wizard of Oz moments with Doug when I interviewed there. He came up from the lower part of the garden with armfuls of salvia cuttings and coleus cuttings. And we chatted a little bit. And the whole time he had that big armful of stuff in his arms, like it was a swaddled baby. And I think he he helped me secure a job there. But again, just learned so much from him and was a, an amazing source of not just plant knowledge, but life knowledge and just a good human being. So again, luck of the draw dropped me into a place in, on the planet with, with some amazing people in, a, in an amazing garden at the time. That's great. And were there any core lessons you took away from there that people could apply in their own home gardens or practices? Doug really drove home secession of bloom for me there. Yeah. Uh, and I re- I had learned, I knew what it was, and we did a lot of perennial displays at Swarthmore and other places I worked, but it was really there that I learned that. Simple things like having planting perennials that you could see through to other plants, things with high flowers, perennials that had fall color, who'd have thunk it? Who would think that way? And really my horticultural mantra of winter, spring, summer, fall interest, that was a big part of, of the gardens there. I mean, just a sense of place and the flow of things. And there was an incredible fountain display that shot water over a path there. And Doug used Penicetum tall tails, which kind of mimicked that, but just that kind of stuff. The very Southern tradition of people plant collections. I've got a rose at my house in Charlotte, climbing rose altissimo that somebody gave Doug, that Doug gave me. There's a salvia planted in my garden in Charlotte that somebody gave Doug, that Doug gave me. So that whole Southern tradition of pass along plants that I've always known about. And my my grandmother was immersed in some of that stuff. So those are some things that, that I took home and still pass that knowledge on when I do lectures and training and things like that. I love that. And so I'm assuming that the next jump was to Bartlett, correct? The next jump was to Bartlett. I, when I was at Swarthmore as the IPM coordinator, there was a Southeastern IPM research group, Southeastern Pennsylvania, and Bartlett was a part of that. And we did a lot of kind of research oriented of integrated pest management and also helped Jeff at Swarthmore with some of the tree contracts. So I worked very closely with Bartlett. And I had a person that I worked with from Bartlett, good friends with her up, up until moving. And she sent me an email and said, hey, just found out about a job at the research lab in Charlotte. And I was like, where is that? I didn't, I'd forgotten that was down here. And she said, they're looking for their first curator. And I emailed back, I don't know if I'm a curator or not. She's, I'm going to email you back tomorrow and you're going to tell me that you've gone and you've applied for that job. So, so I did. I met with Bruce Frederick, who was the director of the lab at the time and w- was amazed by the place. 
called me back the next day and said, uh, could you come back in? Mr. Bartlett's in town. He wants a chance to talk to you. And he and I hit it off. We had a great conversation, both in that kind of formal process. And then we rode around the Arboretum for probably two hours looking at stuff and talking about things. And it just felt good. It felt right and just ripe with opportunity. And at a time in my life when I needed a big change like that. So with lots of counsel from garden colleagues and my friend at Bartlett, I took a leap that took me into 17 years of a, a very diverse horticultural. And so for those listening at home too, what is a curator? Because that may be a term people haven't heard before. Sure. Typically a curator is somebody that manages a collection of something. So if you think about an art museum, they might have a curator of tapestries or a curator of Greek pottery, and they focus on getting records of that, keeping track of it, making sure everything is copacetic with that. A curator from a garden perspective is somebody that manages a collection of plants. So you're managing a living collection. I don't know two curators that do the same thing at a garden. It varies where you go and where you're standing when things happen and take place. So they had never had a curator at Bartlett. They had a very antiquated plant record system. Their plant labeling system was incomplete and needed a lot of help. So really got that kind of off the ground and then just started bringing different plants in and building up collections that we that would work well in Charlotte and also taking, you know, keeping the history of what Bartlett was doing there and what Bartlett did as a company, lots of training there. So growing things that were in urban landscapes and that lined up with the research that they were doing there. So it was a huge learning opportunity for me and much different than some of my colleagues at other, a lot of overlap and correlation with what we were doing, but a lot of different things as, as well. So I found something online that said that it was 350 acres yep. and over 20,000 accession plants. Yeah. I think it might be more than that, but that's a good ballpark number. Yeah. And I also found an article where you wrote online that y'all had probably one of the largest magnolia collections of cultivars in the world. According to my good friends at the Magnolia Society, it's the biggest collection of magnolia cultivars in the world. There is a great arboretum in Belgium, Arboretum Westpolar, that might rival the collection in terms of number of cultivars. But I'm going to stick to my story and say <laughs> it was the, the biggest one. It's quite massive. You've seen it. I have, yeah, in bloom in the spring too. And it was one of those good years that did get hit by frost. So yeah. Yeah. one of the things I love about those collections is that it really gives you a breadth of being able to see a whole species or just see the diversity in it. And you get ideas of bloom time and everything else. Just bloom time. We tried to plant things so that they could get to their size. And I always tell people you have to take that with a grain of salt because plants don't read the guidebooks as to how big they're supposed to get. Colors of flowers, the bloom time was important. Where you planted them, where you shouldn't plant them. We learned a lot of hard lessons in the collection. There were low spots. So anytime we had cold snaps, we would lose plants, not just flowers, entire plants. And also in Arboreta, um, is one of those places, if you build it, they will come. So if you're planting a monoculture of something, everything that affects that group of plants is <laughs> going to come with open arms yeah. to, to the smorgasbord that, that, that awaits yeah. and also learning curves and, and how to correctly manage that and do things the right way. Yeah. And then I recall also y'all did experiments, right? Like I think one time you talked about doing mulching densities out away from trees, that type of experiments, having trees grow into styrofoam underneath sidewalks. So out of those experiments, was there anything that you like learned that was really mind-blowing or earth-shattering for changing your mind on things? Trees are incredibly resilient. We did some horrible things to plants there and it's amazing how they bounce back and also it's amazing how simple cultural things are the key to success with plants mulching probably the biggest take-home thing there is proper planting techniques that's huge to the success of plants and bigger it isn't always better and because it was a research facility for the Bartlett tree expert company there were a whole stable of researchers there, entomologists, plant physiologists, soil scientists, 
And I got to work with those guys every day, which was amazing and learned so much about them. When I was in college, tree care was standing at a tree and looking up at the top. One of the things with the, the, the hundred years of the research that Bartlett was involved with that they learned is it's all about the plant's root system, reducing compaction, soil amendments, yes or no, all that kind of stuff. We learned incredible lessons from, but depth of mulch, types of mulch, the temperature differences that they have, all those sorts of things. We had a diagnostic lab there too. So we would get samples in from all over North America and just seeing how drought would affect things in different parts of the country and how early diseases start to go as we go through climate change and new insects coming across the radar and all those sorts of things. So it was a very unique experience from a garden perspective. Yeah. If you were teaching someone how to plant a tree, what would you tell them? The most important thing, plant quality is huge. Buying a good quality plant, championing your local nurseries, local garden centers, get a good quality plant, start from there. And again, bigger isn't always better. Removing as much of that soil as medium as you can. Again, they're super resilient, but really working up that root ball Planting at the right depth, trees have a root collar, and if you cover that, it does all kinds of bad physiological things to plants. Not stomping the soil around the root ball, placing it firmly, but you don't want to compact that soil before those new roots get a chance to do their thing. And following up with good cultural care, mulching two to three inches, again, away from the root flare, watering when the plant needs it, not overwatering fertilized based on soil tests and tree species, using organic matter with your mulch, not mulching with rock or other things like that, all those types of things. And I still preach those gospels when I do tours and lectures and things and really learned all those good things, things that I've done my whole life, but really got the science behind it for those 17 years at Bartlett. Yeah. On tree root balls, are you one of the people who believes practicing slashing, bashing, that type thing to break that up as much as possible? Yes. And we've done, I still use the colloquial we. We did a lot of that research at Bartlett. Bartlett doesn't plant a lot of trees, but they take care of trees that have been planted. And a lot of the problems would always start there. I planted a lot of trees at Bartlett. On average, we would plant two to 3,000 new accessions every year there. So we put a lot of plants in the ground and we followed all those good practices as we, we planted stuff. So we would really rip those root balls up and get those roots out. And the earlier you can do that, the better. When you're planting a 15-gallon tree, a lot of times it's there's not much you can do. You're just triaging yeah. things that started when that tree was a bare root and put in a gallon pot and then a three-gallon and then a five, then a seven, then a 15. And we've all seen that when we've pulled those things out of containers. It's just a mass of roots that will circle themselves. I did a demo once at a lecture in Annapolis for Bartlett and people gasped when I planted (laughs) because we ripped that thing up to no end. But every once in a while, the guy that I worked with down there will send me a picture of it. It's still kicking. It's still alive. And part of that is because we planted it the right way. Good. Excellent. And then one of the things I know too, you did recently before you left was install a prairie grassland planting. Do you have any advice for that process for people who are thinking about it? Yeah, it doesn't have to be big. It can be small. I have to give props to Annabelle Rimwick at Duke Gardens. I went to a lecture that she talked about something you could do with, they have a prairie at Duke Gardens here in the area where they developed a small acreage, turned it into a prairie. And I've always managed NOMO areas and interacted with a lot of commercial folks that did that and was visiting, somebody was visiting me in Charlotte and they said, why do you mow all this grass? Just stop cutting it. It'll save, you're not going to be spewing emissions from the mowers. You're not going to have somebody sitting on a machine for eight hours a day. You're not going to have to pay for the gas. It's the right thing to do. And if you want to go a step further, you can plan it with something. So we, I started out with that and had done that. I mentioned that at Holden where we would cut the edges along the roadways coming into the Arboretum. So going to see Annabelle speak about Piedmont Prairies, we live in the Piedmont, so it was just a natural thing. So I floated it by Mr. Barlett, and he said, sounds like a good idea to me. So we started out small and just added on to it. And I, my math may be wrong, but I think we put in four iterations, the last one this past June. Again, it doesn't need to be big. Ours were pretty good size because we had the space to do that. But that diversity adds so much to a landscape, not just aesthetically, but just with beneficial insects and pollinators and butterflies and 
if you build it, they will come. And man, did they come after we've started putting that stuff in. And it really changed my perspective on maintaining big tracts of property. But they're really pitching, and at Duke in particular, doing some pocket prairies, doing some small areas with that diversity, because it adds so much to what could be a static landscape. It's not, the look isn't for everybody. The first time I showed my wife the prairie at Duke, we were in town, she's an alum of Duke, and I met uh, Annabelle and she walked me through it. And my wife came later in the day and I was super excited. I was jazzed. I was talking about it. I was pointing things out and watching the grasses move in the wind and there were butterflies zipping by and wasps on mint. And it was this religious experience. And she patted me on the arm and she said, I know you like it, but it looks like a bunch of weeds to me. So it's not for, it's not for everybody, but there, there is definitely a place for that. I think pitching the pocket prairie or for smaller sites is the way to go. And we're going to try to do that here at Ralston in some form or fashion, because it's just such a great talking point on doing things a little bit differently than the traditional turf grass or other things. And you don't need a lot of space to do it. It doesn't need to be acre. It can be small as well. Awesome. Yeah, I totally agree. You got to start small, figure out what works and then right. see, and also see that you're not creating a giant rat, snake, no. gremlin nest, whatever inserts your pest into there. But really, right. these are beautiful ecosystems that we can integrate into our gardens. And that's one of the things that I'm most interested in is how do people do it well, especially in the South? Because yeah. a lot of the plant list that people have for up north plantings don't work as well here in the South. And even here, the uh, there's a lot of things that we've learned by trial and error. The adage was you got to burn a prairie. And all that did was make the roguish plants matter and they would outcompete all their neighbors. Oh, yeah. So we stopped doing that. And the thinking is natural prairies were browsed by bison and deer and elk. So doing that Chelsea chop at a certain time of the year where you just mow it down and that keeps things at a level where it's not weeds over your head and you can yes. actually see, see the flowers and it extends that season of, of bloom also. And picking, there's a whole wealth of different types of plants that 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 will work and it's going to be an evolving thing. Things are going to outcompete and get big and things are going to bloom and fade away. So it's, a, it's definitely a learning experience. Awesome. And you've now been at the J.C. Ralston for just a couple of months, right? December. So December, January. yeah. So just yeah. a little, it'll be almost four months in April. Awesome. So what are you most excited about the J.C. Ralston Arbor, which of course near and dear to me since I did grad work at NC State and many evenings I would walk through the Arboretum after I finished classwork or research or whatever. So many fun things there. Did y'all get married here too? We also got married there as well. We also got married, had the reception in the Ruby McSwain Center. And That's a big deal. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. So definitely many ties to that place. And a lot of people who came to the wedding said that it was one of the best weddings they'd ever been to. So kudos to my wife, Karen, for pulling that <laughs> off. And kudos to Mark Weathington and the whole crew there for making everything look so good. So, yeah, no, that's really cool. Yeah. The, there's a multitude of things I was excited about coming here. I've got family here. So that was a big draw. I was ready for a change. And uh, there's a lot of stuff to do in this area. As you, there's a, It's my passive aggressive hope that you, know, you think about the Delaware Valley and there's all those wonderful gardens tour, Longwood, the Scott Arboretum, Chanticleer, my good buddy, uh, Ethan Kaufman's new Stone Lee Garden. Yeah, There's so much stuff there. And there's quite a bit here as well. You've got Duke, you've got UNC Chapel Hill, you've got Montrose, you've got the Ralston, you've got Meredith College. There's a lot of stuff here, a lot of nursery industry. So I would love to see us turn into the Delaware Valley of the South, so to speak. But, and I keep coming up with this answer. And those of you that have heard me say it, it comes with all sincerity. But one of the big draws to come here was getting the chance to work with volunteers again. And they've got a great group of volunteers here that are so dedicated to what they're doing. And it's so much fun and enjoyment to, to be around them. We get to do a lot of educational stuff with the public and with members and, and things like that. And I, I miss doing that in my 17 years at, at Bartlett. We did a lot of lectures and interaction with the public and I traveled for talks and things, but we do a lot of that here. And it's cool to be a part of that. I'm a sucker for the partnership and being under the umbrella of NC State University. I really like that, those interactions and I'm really looking forward to building relationships with folks in the horticulture department and beyond anything that's related. I really look forward to that. And it's got such an incredible history and story to be able to be a part of something that was started by JC 
and the direction that Mark has taken the garden in the time that he's been here and to be a partner with him and to be a part of that and creating things and the staff that is here, how dedicated they are. And it's exciting. And I put down drinking from one fire hose in Charlotte and picked up another one here, but it's a little more sustainable here. And it's new and, and it's exciting. So I'm looking forward to all those uh, all those opportunities. We've got a big batch of interns coming very soon and went through that interview process. And man, was it tough because they all were mm. great. Yeah. So yeah. getting the chance to do that again. And again, we had interns at Bartlett. I didn't really have any horticultural centric ones. So these are folks that a lot of them are from NC State. I got a really good person from Kevin's program in Spartanburg. So I'm looking forward to, to that as well. So a lot of things, a lot of new changes and a new place to live, um, new restaurants to try out. Like um, Torchy's Tacos. <laughs> I can't believe that's here. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Uh, You've got Torchy's and Jenny's and Goodberries and so much other good food there. So Yeah. yeah. I, every time I go to Jenny's, I, I think about you because you, you turn me on to them. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank You're you. Welcome. Shifting gears. Thank you for sure. sharing your storied history about your life in public horticulture. I mean, it's just amazing to see everywhere you've been and the impact you've had. I want to now talk about how you grow and cultivate yourself. Okay. So do you have systems or processes that help you become a better horticulturist? That's a really good question. I try to be organized and be on top of things. I, in all honesty, I struggle and fumble with calendar stuff. I was with somebody in the garden the other day and he had an alarm go off. It was you. And I was like, <laughs> Why don't I do that? Why don't I set my alarms for things? Yeah, that was my alarm for class because it was right. Break. Yeah. So it was like, right. oh, this is when I need to get starting my class. Um, uh, I have adopted that as of just a couple of weeks ago. So thank you for that. Oh, wow. You're welcome. Those, those are important things. The biggest thing for me is listening to people and getting buy-in and input and ideas from other people. I don't have an ego. I don't have to be the one that comes up with stuff. I would much prefer other people do that. So that's an important part of working with people people is uh, I'm all years. I want to hear of better ways to do something. I'm willing to try doing some things differently. There's got to be a better mousetrap for some things. Being very receptive to those things. Those those are probably the biggest things, I think, in terms of keeping my ship righted. Something that I think is important, and I've learned this over the years, is and my my wife has given me this mantra of of put the oxygen mask on yourself first in all parts of life. You're going to be able to navigate things better when you do that and, uh, and triage and take care of things. I Something else that's been a big part of my life and something that I talk about way too much is running. I used to do a lot of mountain running, ultra marathons. And that's also a good mantra from that is uh, put the oxygen mask on yourself, take care of your feet so you can keep on going for the long haul. So taking time for yourself, keeping yourself happy and healthy, always find time to, to Find a good bakery with the donuts and bread and good bread. <laughs> Find time to, to eat good quality ice cream. Don't skimp on the cheap stuff. So though, you know, those are some things that have kept me green side up over the 30 plus years that I've been doing this. Yeah, I was definitely going to ask you about running because I knew that was a big part of your life. Do you see more connections now with exercise and horticulture? It's a physical job. And as I've gotten older and moved up hierarchically, I spend a lot of time on my backside. So I think from a health perspective, I think it's important walking and moving and doing all those sorts of things. It's probably a good thing that I'm not schlepping mulch all day. That That's a young man's job anymore. And it really beats up your body. But I think a lot of our colleagues that are in this, it's a physical job. So you get that exercise from there. But anybody that likes plants is going to either be in their garden or at a garden or traveling to go to a garden or going to be outside hiking or whatever. But we're all cut from the same cloth. And if you're outside, you're moving and you're grooving. Yeah. Do you keep a to-do list? I do. And I try to, I've got, this is something I learned from Andrew. He had this whole clipboard system of things and I've semi-adopted that with my calendar. I've got a a notebook that I keep with me and I keep things in that kind of up-to-date. It always falls through the cracks though. Things happen and things get bumped around and you just have to, you can't panic and get all worked up that things aren't working the way they're supposed to. It's just the way it goes. I, I jokingly to say I'm only one man. I can only keep up with so many things at, at one time. And when I was 20 years younger, I would get really worked up about that kind of stuff. But I have mellowed in my salad days here. I've gone gray and lost more hair. 
Yeah. What is the clipboard system? Just curious. Andrew kept like plant orders and that kind of stuff organized. I, it's evolved over, over a number of years. And I've got, here's one here with some plant order stuff on it. Uh, there's another one behind me. I honestly don't remember how intricate it was. It's been such a long time when he was at the Scott Arboretum, but it was something that was like, that's a good system that works. When I traveled a good bit, I've also got colored manila envelopes. I'm a big oh, yeah. fan of those. So yeah. Green are plant orders, blue are trips, yellow ones are, are other projects. Oh, that's at, brilliant. At, at a glance, that, oh. that helps, me, helps me figure those things out. That's um, brilliant. Another thing I, I took take home from Andrew and those of you that know him, binder clips, very important, all the different sizes. And I've taken it another step and I've got colored ones that I oh. Like, so most curators kind of have that thing in them, that gene. And I look back when I was a small boy and all the books that my grandmother had for me, I would make my brothers check them out like library books. So I had cards and nice. I categorized. So I look at my curatorial roots and they started yeah. when I was probably seven or eight years old. They go way back. I love that. That's great. Thanks. I love getting to the new show, things like that. So thanks. Yeah. I'm going to definitely apply that colored folder idea. That's brilliant. It's huge and it's simple. Yeah. So at working in botanic gardens, you also work with a lot of people. How do you move projects forward? Do you have any thoughts on ways that you've made that easier for yourself over the years? You said earlier listening, but right. thoughts? Being open to ideas, being open to things changing. When you saw when you were here recently, there's a giant pile of soil right in the smack in the middle of the garden. And we're doing a new project where we ripped out some old plants that have, we've finished evaluating. It was in a neglected part of the garden. Neglected is a strong term. Um, an older part of the garden with bad drainage. So we we have a pretty good plan. We're going to put berms in. We're going to put a water feature that handles the runoff that comes all the way through the garden. And instead of throwing it into the sewer system, we're going to we're going to daylight it and figure out a way to use it. So we're being a more sustainable a sustainable garden and have a better pathway system for folks to to get around also and tie all those things together. So we got a big pile of soil to start that project and it's rained every week since we've done that. So just being flexible, getting input and help because you can't do it all yourself. Um, it helps to have money for things like that. So having somebody that can handle that's Mark's job and harnessing ideas and keeping those moving in a good direction. There's always good comments about what you're doing when you start something like that. And there's always bad ones and just weeding through those things. And again, being respectful and listening, whether it's a good one or a bad one, but being receptive to that, being patient and because th things always something's not going to work out. We had hoped to have that project well underway last week. And had some equipment problems and some logistic problems and the whole thing just fell apart within an hour. So we're back to plan B and yeah, moving yeah. In, a, in another direction and just being flexible to, to do that. But also timely. We want to get it done so that we can reclaim that part of the garden that's a big pile of dirt right now. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Wrapping up some rapid fire questions. I always sure. like to ask towards the end. How do you stay current on horticulture topics? The first and most important, I read your blog. Thank you. I wasn't looking for that, but thank you. I appreciate that. Being being involved with garden organizations, I'm on the board for the Magnolia Society, helping with that and the newsletters that come out, going to conferences. APJ is a good one for me. International Plant Propagators, I've not attended. I've been asked to speak a couple of times, but just be interacting with that group of people is huge and attending those sorts of things symposia are huge. We've got a big one coming up here, the Southeastern Plant Symposium, speakers from all over the place and helping stay current with that. I'm lucky to have a lot of good friends out in the world that are doing stuff and we all talk to each other as often as we can. Well, Douglas out in Denver Botanic is a good friend of mine. We talk all the time. My, I've got friends at the National Arboretum, friends at the Arnold, the esteemed Michael Dozman. We stay in touch and talk all the time. Richard Hawkey at Chicago Botanic, who's doing amazing things with plant trials and recent winner of the Scott Award. Kudos to my friend Richard. Yes, um, congratulations just, to him. Just having, luckily, to have friend, these sorts of friendships. Andrew, who's linked into Penn Hort, 
and all of the things that he's interested in and bouncing ideas off each other. I've been very lucky to travel and do things both abroad and around the country and going to talks and lectures and even things that we do here. I always learn something when I go to somebody else's talk here. We had one recently about one of the historically Black neighborhoods in the area, and I learned so much about this area. It was fascinating. So just being receptive, that sort of stuff. Awesome. Thank you. What are some underused plants that you think people should use more? I think a long time ago, you and I had a talk about how nobody talks about shrubs. I think that was you. And there are a lot of shrubs that are underutilized. People use the same things. And spoiler alert, I'm speaking at the Southeastern Plant Symposium, and that's going to be my talk, is the, the forgotten stepchilds of the plant world, shrubs, woody plant material. There, there are so many things out there that are underutilized, things that have a season of interest. There's lots of dutsia that I like a lot that you just don't see people use. I'm a big fan of oak leaf hydrangeas, and there's oh. some really good cultivars, small ones, big ones, a little honey, the yellow foliage one is one of my favorites winter spring summer fall interest i have seen that meatballed in washington dc <laughs> you don't need to prune it you don't need to don't need to touch it and meatballed meatballed yeah. it's insane it's a crying it's a crying shame and the lack of diversity in the plant world in urban landscapes is shocking there, there are more urban trees out there than red maple and willow oak there's a whole plethora of things that that work well and just, I'm going to continue in, until my, my my dying day to, to be on that soapbox and talk about that diversity and using, get out of the norm of things. And people always say, well, I can't find those, those plants. We talk to nurserymen, talk to garden centers. If we can find them, they can find them. And the more people that ask about it, the more that they're going to be available and out there. Awesome. There's this phenomenon called the curse of knowledge, where yeah. there's something that you know, and you consider it totally obvious, but everybody else doesn't know it. Do you yeah. like that in your life? A tree planting, planting things. That That's a huge one. It's, it just makes so much sense. And so few people will do that. Pruning is, a, is another one. Somebody asked me in the garden the other day that they said, you must have an army of volunteers that prune all this stuff all the time. We don't know. You don't have to prune it just because it's a plant. You know, that that's one. Another one that drives me crazy is people that bag their grass clippings. Yeah. You, you don't need to do that. And the same and, and leaves. That, that, that one absolutely destroys me. It's free mulch. Those nutrients back into the turf grass are going to benefit. I'm one of those people that used to go around my neighborhood and throw bags of leaves in my wheelbarrow and wheel them back to my house. Yeah, I did the same thing. and I. But the only thing I've run into problems with that lately is 2,4-D herbicide stays in the bag. Like if you've got clippings and stuff, but I used to do that all the time too. The, leaf, the leaves I get, the grass clippings I don't. You get, other, yeah, that's you, get, you get other surprises in bags yeah. of grass clippings, which, which will go unmentioned here. Yeah, mulberry weed. I've So far, I don't have that in my house, but yeah, yeah. it's just started to pop up in some places. Yep, yep. What is a myth that... A lot of gardeners believe or your research or experience has shown otherwise that you'd like to bust on the podcast. Pruning is one. They say you should only prune at certain times of the year. There there are certain plants that if you prune them in early spring, maples in particular, they'll because they're running sap, they'll bleed like crazy. But you can prune when your saw and your pruners are sharp. You don't want to prune things that are flowering because you don't want to prune flowers off of, but you can prune it at different times of the year. Bagging leaves is the biggest one, I think. I hate to see commercial landscape companies in a in an area blowing leaves out and then removing them. That, that's just such a huge horticultural myth that you've got to get rid of them. Yes, if you keep them on the turf grass, they can harm the turf grass, but you can grind them up, raise the wheels on your mower till your deck is higher and just run over the leaves. That's a, a super easy solution to do. I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole of native versus non native that's another myth that native plants are better than non-natives diversity is the key to life in all aspects and and having a lush beautiful chemically dependent lawn that's another one that's a culture that we've been fed for many years there's a place for that but there's other options out there great i saved this question to later because i thought it'd be a good bookend for us but yeah. books because you yes. started Early on, saying your experience with plants and learning about them started with books. What are a couple of books that you found very inspirational or you found yourself returning to time after time about horticulture, gardening, or nature? There's two 
that I use every day. Michael Durr's Woody Plants. I touch that book every day, looking at different things. There's also another landscape book that I always steer people towards, Harrison Flint's Landscape Plants for North America. Okay, I don't know that one. Absolute invaluable book. It went out of publication. He passed away a number Uh, of years ago. And it was so popular that they re-released it. It's very pricey, but it's absolutely invaluable. It's a really good book. A new one on my nightstand, and I've got a copy of it here. Kelly Norris's book, New Naturalism fantastic and a spacing on thomas Rainier, his book with claudia west yeah, yeah. planting in a post-wild world that's a life-changing book yeah it um, sure is yeah a- absolutely fabulous those are the my kind of go-to horticultural books there there are lots of other ones that are floating out there i've got a pretty couple of good ones on spring bulbs those sorts of things but those are the stalwarts those are the ones that that i go back to time and time again Excellent. Second to last question I always ask people on the podcast, propagating horticulturists. How do we go about making more gardeners and people who love plants in the world? I'm going to toot your horn again because I visited you at Stephen F. Austin with Andrew, and I was extremely impressed that you got some of your students to have breakfast with us so that they could meet us as we were coming through town. Giving young students a voice, exposing them to things out in the world, things that they might not get exposed to where they're from, that's huge. Spending time with folks, and you do a really good job of that because I've seen it live and in person. And I've seen it with professors here that I've interacted with. And I had professors at Virginia Tech that the door was always open. They would kick a chair over for me to sit down and talk to. It was crucial for me to do internships. I never would have, the direction that I wanted to go, I wouldn't have found it if I hadn't gone to the, I would have ended up doing something related, but that really opened my eyes up to what was out there, the opportunities. So that's the best way to, to do that. And there's a lot of avenues to do that now that there weren't when I was in school, sounding like an old man. Social media is great. This podcast, who'd have thunk that this would take off the way that it has? The opportunity for us to sit down face to face and have a talk like this. It's amazing. Yes, and, it is. and people can listen to this. If they want to hear my dulcet tones. I hate the sound of my voice, but all those kinds of tools are in, invaluable. I'm looking forward to interacting with the, the interns that we have so I can talk to them about books like this that they might not come across and other things and can open their eyes to, to stuff. And I always try to take time with, we've got student workers here and I always try to take time to, to talk and interact because they're cool people to interact with and they've got great ideas and they see the world differently than I did when I was their age because things are a lot different. There's a deficit of people that are going into this industry and it's got to take up the torch. Awesome. Great answer. Last question. How can people learn more about you? Come visit the Arboretum. I do a lot of talks, classes. They do. A, we do a lot of YouTube stuff. I don't know if I want to steer people towards that, but that stuff is all out there in, in the world. Yeah. I watched one of your plant collecting trip talks before this. So yeah. I love that. I think that's great putting those out into the world. Yeah. So that's a good way to, to do that. But just come out to visit. This is us and our element is, is here in the garden. And uh, you'll get a chance to see something interesting, not speaking of myself, but a plant or an insect or some interaction out in the garden. That's the what could be better than that. I mean, you're on Instagram too, right? I do. I am on Instagram. I, you and your dog. I was just going to say that way too many, many pictures of my dog. She's something else. There will not be another one like her. I'm going to try to shift back to plants. I'm not doing as much of me running in the mountains and all that, that entails stuff. But yeah, that's, that's a good way to, to see me on, on, on Instagram. Not on Facebook as much. Instagram is a lot more artistic, I think. I know it's under the same shingle, but Instagram is the way. Thank you, Greg, for this incredible conversation. I just feel like it was so dense and rich with everything you shared about your history in public garden and new inspiring ideas and stuff that you use to grow and cultivate yourself. Thank you again for sharing your wisdom and knowledge and come visit. Yes, soon. I'm overdue. The pandemic threw a curveball on that. With some of the plant conservation stuff that I was signed up to do, we were due to come back through Texas for some witch hazels and magnolias. APGA, Fort Worth. That's right. Yeah. I definitely hope to see you there. Yeah, absolutely. I'll make time. All right. Thanks, Greg. Good to see you. Good to see you too. Thanks so much for listening today. Do you have questions or comments? 
you can visit theplantasticpodcast.com for show notes and to reach out and say hi. Remember, plants can't talk, but we can. The plant world needs people to share how wonderful these green organisms are. So tell someone a fun fact about plants. Make it simple, make it remarkable, and most of all, make it plantastic. Until next time, keep growing.